Welcome to the Torah Talks Podcast with Rabbi Yaakov Laredo. Rabbi Laredo is the director of a Torah center which inspires Jews of all ages and backgrounds to develop and expand themselves through the study of Torah. We focus on three main areas, discovering Torah, connecting to God, and engaging with other Jews. In this podcast, Rabbi Laredo will discuss the Book of Esther in 11 classes. Rabbi Laredo's number one goal is to provide you with deep, clear, concise, and applicable Torah material, helping you become the best you. Welcome to the weekly study of Megillat Esther, the Book of Esther. The intention of this class is to understand the basic text and story of the Megillah, along with the insight of our major commentaries drawn from the Talmud, Midrash, Rishonim and Achronim. Now these classes took me dozens of hours to prepare so this way I could deliver them in a clear and concise and pleasant manner, bringing the Megillah story to life. This podcast will have a total of 11 classes, including this introduction and then another class per chapter from chapters 1 to 8, a 10th class, which will have chapter 9 and 10 together, and a final class on the bibliography of the rabbinic scholars cited in these classes, all the commentaries. Now, as we know it, I can say for myself, one of my favorite holidays, if not my favorite holiday, was always Purim. It's an amazing, it's a joyous, it's jolly, it's happy. We dress up. We have fun, we get sweets. Now, there are four main mitzvot obligations that we have on the day of Purim. The first is reading the Megillah, the book of Esther. Our second obligation is Mishloch Manot, sending Purim baskets, food from friend to friend. Number three, Matanot Levyonim is giving gifts to the poor. And the fourth is the Seuda, the festive meal. And there we eat, we drink, we have a good time. So as a child, I always thought Purim was just about getting dressed and sharing candy and costumes and having a good time. But there's a lot more to Purim. And at a certain point in our lives, we all stop and realize maybe it's time to learn more, delve deeper and not be satisfied with the stories and the insights and the understanding we developed as a child. Maybe there's a lot more in this text, which we read twice a year. We read it that evening and we eat it, read it in the, in the morning on Purim. So these classes are here to provide an easy and enjoyable opportunity for you as a listener to get a good grasp on the book of Esther and to connect to the text that we will be reading twice this Purim. I think there's a great misconception amongst Jewish people, and that is most people think that since Hanukkah comes a couple months before Purim every year, so Hanukkah happened first. Well, the truth is that Purim and the story of Purim and Mordechai and Haman all really happened prior They happened, this story of Purim happened at the end of the Babylonian exile, right before the building of the the second temple. This miracle took place in 3405 
counting from the creation of the world. That's the Hebrew year, corresponding to 355 BCE. Hanukkah, however, took place in the middle of the Second Temple. It was in the year 3624, which is 219 years after Purim. So it's very important to note that 219 years later was the story of Hanukkah. So Purim really happened first. Another important fact for this story is that the Megillah is not just speaking about a one-year deal or a couple years. I know we read it in anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes. I know every Chazan or Baal Koreh tries to see how clear and how fast they could actually read the Megillah. However, the Megillah is not something which was just an overnight or a 12-month deal. It actually covers 14 years from beginning to end, as was the time of reign of Ahasuerus as, as king. I wanted to spend a moment and just go through the chronology of the Gentile kings, starting from Nebuchadnezzar and going all the way to Ahasuerus along with his son Darius. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes king in the year 3318, which corresponds to 442 BCE. The next to come was Evil Murdoch, then Belshazzar. Belshazzar was also king of, of Babylon, Babylonia, and he was also the father of Vashti. Then we have Darius I, who only reigned for a year, Cyrus, which were both, both Darius and Cyrus were both kings of Persia. Then we have Artachashta, Artachshasta, sorry. Uh, he was a very short king, not too many know about him. He was the king which preceded right away Ahasuerus. Um, he was also a Persian, Persian king. Then comes our famous Ahasuerus, who was king for 14 years, and he was king over either the whole world or half the world, as we'll learn in chapter 1. And the final king in this in this chronology we're going to go through is Darius II, which was Ahasuerus and Esther's son, who reigned for a total of 32 years. I think before we get into some basic questions and understanding of the Megillah, for example, who wrote the Megillah, when was it written, why was the Megillah named after, after Esther, um, why is there no Megillah read on Hanukkah? Where did the word Purim come from and how special the day is? I wanted to spend a moment on going through a complete Babylonian exile and Purim story timeline. I think when we understand and put in context what's going on, we get an overview of what took place. I think that's a great way as an introduction before we start learning the Megillah. So let's start all the way back. We're going to do the Hebrew years. It's just easier that way. We're going to go back all the way to 3318. That was the year that Nebuchadnezzar assumes the throne of Babylon. The following year, in 3319, Nebuchadnezzar makes Judah a vassal state of Babylon, meaning that, that Israel also now owes uh, responsibility and is paying taxes to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Some years later, in 3327, 
Nebuchadnezzar exiles Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, along with 10,000 leading scholars, and amongst them, Mordechai. So they're exiled out of Israel. That was the beginning of the, of, of the partial beginning of the exile. Eleven years later, in 3,338, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. This was the destruction of the first temple and exiles the complete Jewish nation and they are scattered all over the world. Now, although most of the Jews did go to, to Babylon, however, we can't say that all of them did. That's obviously not true. Not all of them did, but most did. So that took place in 3,338. Balshetzar, again, Vashti's father, was counting from, from when Nebuchadnezzar ascended to his throne. And he counted 70 years from then. He holds a banquet, and then he sees the writing on the wall, and at that night... The Persians and the Medes conquer Babylon and they kill Belshazzar along with all of his men. Now we have to remember there was a prophecy given to the Jewish prophets that even the, the Gentile kings understood that this destruction of the temple, or better yet, the exile of the Jewish people, was to last for 70 years. So Belshazzar counts 70 years, and he's like, oh, it hasn't happened. Let's have a banquet. What he did was he pulled out all of the, the vessels of the Bet HaMikdash of the temple, and he threw a very big party, and he obviously did a horrible thing, and he was punished for that. His issue was he was counting 70 years from when Nebuchadnezzar assumes the throne of Babylon, and that's not when it was intended to be. Really, the 70 years was from the destruction. We're soon going to see Achashverosh also makes a mistake. So that happened in 3,389. A year later, in 3,390, well, Balshetzar passes away prior to that. So in 3,390, there's a Persian ruler who comes up. We mentioned his name, King Cyrus. And he allows the Jews to return to Israel. He makes a public proclamation. All Jews are able to go back to Israel. However... Only 42,000 Jews take him up on his offer and go back to, to Israel. Now, depending on how, which calculations you make, that's between 5 to 10% of the Jews that were in exile took Cyrus up on this offer. Cyrus actually allowed the Jewish people to continue the, to, to build, to rebuild the Bet HaMikdash, the temple. However, the Samaritans stopped it. They sent in a complaint to Cyrus, and they told Cyrus to stop allowing the Jews to build. And unfortunately, there was a building freeze, there was a construction freeze, and that freeze actually lasted 18 years, all the way to the end of our story, till Darius II, Esther and Achashverosh's son, allows the rebuilding of the, of the temple. Two years later, so that was Cyrus. Two years later, in 3392, Ahasuerus becomes king. Now, when Ahasuerus becomes king, he does so in a very quiet way. And we're going to learn in chapter 1 how he, how he pushed his way in with political tools to get to become who he was, because he was not of noble blood. However, he assumes his throne in 3392. A year later, in 3393, 
there was a great revolt and a rebellion against Achashverosh, all the way in the Indian part of the world, around India and Hodu. And to make a long story short, we'll deal with that, about it in chapter 3, but that is the year that Mordechai acquires Haman as a slave. Two years later, in 3395, Achashverosh, in the third year of Achashverosh's reign, Achashverosh now holds a banquet. He holds a very big party. He counts 70 years from when he thought the exile should have been over for the Jewish people, and it wasn't. He was wrong again. He was counting from when Nebuchadnezzar exiles the Yoyachin, the king of Judah, and the 10,000 leading scholars, which was a mistake. Again, it should have been later from when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. So he made a, dis- the, a, a, a mistake in that calculation. He holds a banquet, again, on the on the vessels of the Bet HaMikdash, and that was when uh, it was 180 days long, you know, it was six months, and then there was another seven days, and he kills Vashti. It's interesting to note that Vashti was actually only married to Achashverosh that year. Most of our commentaries say that the long parting was a wedding party, for Achashverosh marrying Vashti. Vashti was only 18 years old when she married uh, Achashverosh. And as we know, that as um, that Vashti dies in that year. So that's in 3395. Four years later, in the seventh year of the king's reign, of Achashverosh's rulership, then Esther becomes queen. Esther becomes queen, and she hides her identity for four and a half years until she is forced to tell Achashverosh that she is Jewish because that was the only way she would be able to save herself. She says, myself and my nation were sold to Haman. And we'll deal with that when we, when we get there in the, in the Megillah. Five years later, in the twelfth year of reign of the king Achashverosh, in 3404, Haman is promoted to be the top minister. Haman was promoted to be top minister. He was taken from the bottom, lifted up all the top, and his promotion of being top minister only lasted a total of 70 days. He dies 70 days later. That happened approximately the 6th of Shavat, if we count 70 days to his death. So the 6th of Shavat is when Haman was promoted. Now, a little time later in Yudgimel Nisan, the 13th of the month of Nisan, that same year in 3404, Haman casts a lottery. He casts a lottery to d- decide when is going to be the time that we're going to, that he's going to be successful to destroy the Jewish people, to commit genocide against them. He chooses his date, he finds a date, the date is going to be next year, in 11 months exactly, the 13th of Nisan. What happens is he now requests from the king, he sends out a royal decree that there will be a day dedicated next year to annihilate the Jewish people. The very following day, as soon as Esther hears about it, as soon as Mordechai and Esther hear about it, Esther decrees a three-day fast for all the Jews in the city of Shushan as an atonement for them eating in a Hashverosh's banquet nine years ago. 
So she was the one who came up with that decree. She made sure to spread it through Mordechai and everybody. And they fasted the 14th, 15th, and 16th of Nisan, even though those were the days of Pesach, and even though they had an obligation to eat matzah on those days, a Torah obligation, since it was a very special and scary time for the Jewish people, Esther decided, and it was accepted, all of the Jewish people in Shushan fasted for those three days as an atonement, as we said, and also for her success. Now within those three days, Esther comes in front of Achashverosh. She comes in Achashverosh unannounced to invite him and Haman to a private banquet for that day. Achashverosh accepts. They have a banquet that day. Esther doesn't tell them what she wants. She says, rather come back the next day. And now we find ourselves on the 16th day of Nisan, and Esther hosts Achashverosh and Haman for a second time in banquet. She proves how Haman is wicked, and how Haman is has not the best intentions for the king, and Haman is hung on the tree, as we said, exactly 70 days after he was promoted to be top minister. Sometime later, on Chafgimel Sivan, the 23rd of Sivan, Achashverosh, after finally Esther begs and convinces him, sends out a royal t- decree to uproot Haman's decree against the, the Jews. Now, finally, skipping up a couple months, all the way on the 13th of Adar in the year 3405, which was the exact day which Haman, Alava Shalom, or Yemach Shemo, as we'll say, um, as, as Haman intended on killing the Jews, that very day was a day that Achashverosh granted Esther and the Jews to take revenge and wipe out all the Jew haters. On that day, which Haman had intention to kill the Jews, Haman's own ten sons were hung on a tree. The next day was a Purim victory, a festive day for the whole world, because it was the day after that they were granted, the Jews were granted to take revenge against all the Jew haters. But Esther requested another day of revenge against the Jew haters in Shushan, and she was granted by Achashverosh another day to destroy any Jew haters. So therefore, the following day on the 15th of Adar was the day that the Jews in Shushan um, fulfilled their festive holiday, and that was their day of Purim victory. One year later, in 3406, was when Achashverosh dies and is succeeded by his son, Darius II, who was also the son of Esther. Two years after that, in 3408, Darius allows the construction or the reconstruction of the temple to restore it to its main time. And this is exactly 70 years since the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was in 3330, sorry, 3338. And now we are in 3408, which is exactly 70 years, staying true to the original prophecy that um, Ahasuerus, that, that, that God gave the Jewish people as a prophecy, how long the exile would actually Last. So this is a synopsis. I know there was a lot of names and dates I was throwing uh, throwing all around. If anyone would like a copy of this complete Babylonian exile and Perm story timeline, um, feel free to, to text me, to message me, to email me, 
um, or to find us online and we'll be able to provide that. It would be it would be my greatest pleasure. Now to speak about a couple very fundamental um, questions and answers that need to be answered on the on the Megillah is who wrote the Megillah? So the Talmud in Masechet Baobatra, page fifteen a, tells us that the Anshek Neset Hagdola, the great assembly of men, were the ones who wrote it. Uh, amongst them was Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, Zerubavel, Shaltiel, which were all prophets, and they were the ones who decided to record and to write this Megillah. So they were the ones who wrote it. When was the Megillah written? It was written one year after the victory. So the victory was in 3405. In 3406, it was written and it was instituted as a sacred writing added to our um added to our tanakh then why was the book of esther named the book of esther i mean we could have called it the book of persia the book of mordechai the book of haman why specifically was this book named after esther why did they see it fit to be named after after esther so the midrash tells us that it was Esther who gave the advice to Mordechai to tell all of the Jews to fast those three days and to do teshuva for their sins. So since she was the one who promoted the concept of teshuva, which was the whole reason why God brought this upon the Jewish people in the first place, that's why it was named after her. Another Midrash tells us it's because she was the one who endangered her life. She was the main individual in danger of life. Coming in front of the king unannounced was worthy of capital punishment. Since she put her life in danger, it, uh, the namesake of this book goes to her name. Rabbi Yonatan Eibeshit says that Esther comes from the terminology of Hester, of being hidden. And since this whole miracle and this whole story all was not very hidden and not in the public eye, therefore she was the one who um, it was in her name, not only for her namesake, but also for what her name, uh, the connotation of her name. Why isn't there a Megillah read on Chanukah? Now, Chanukah and Purim are, are our both rabbinical holidays of the year. The rest of our holidays are Torah obligations, such as Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. They're all Those are all written in the Torah. They were given to... Moses by God. However, Chanukah and Purim both being the rabbinical holidays, so we read a Megillah on Purim, but why don't we read one on Chanukah? So three answers we have for this question. The first answer is given by Rabbi Yonatan Ibishitz. He says that during the time of Chanukah, as we said, it was in the middle of the second temple. During the time that the temples were up and running, there were so much miracles. There was God's Shekhinah, His presence amongst the Jewish people in the temple, and therefore there was no need to recognize the the nest, the miracle of Hanukkah, by writing it down. It was part of all of the miracles that were taking place. We will commemorate it with lighting of the candles, but no need to record it. However, since this, the, the story of Esther and the story of Purim was when the temple was not standing, therefore it was a... A, a a miracle which was out of the ordinary, something not anticipated, 
And for that reason, they decided to write a Megillah for Purim and have it and have it spread. It was not during the time of the temple. The Ben Ishchai says that there was actually Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration that came down to the great assembly of men during that time and told them to write it. By Hanukkah, they did not have this revelation from God, so therefore they didn't write it. The Siftei HaChamim on the Talmud tells us that it was Esther herself who requested that this story be written and documented. Why? Because she was scared that her and her children would forevermore be set aside and looked down upon for her marrying a Gentile. Now, even though she did it for the right intentions, but in a couple generations from now, who would know that her intentions were right? So she was the one who demanded this be written, so everyone would know that she had pure intentions and the proper intentions to keep and save the Jewish people. Where does the name Purim come from? Why is this holiday called Purim? So Rabbi Yosef HaTzarfati says that Purim is a, is a is a terminology in in plural and the reason for this is because ha, because Haman set up many different types of lotteries or tricks to figure out how and when would be the best day for him to set revenge and to commit genocide against the Jewish people so he was repeatedly um going over and trying many ways had to find that date the Yad Yosef says that since Haman set up two specific types of lotteries, one on the day and one on the month, therefore uh, he was uh, the the, por- the holiday is called Purim. The Chida writes, and this I think is the nicest answer. The Chida writes is that Purim is an acronym for the other holidays, the Torah holidays of the year. Purim. So Pei is for Pesach, Vav is for Vesukot which is a, Sukkot is a continuation of the holiday of, of the Exodus. Resh for Rosh Hashanah, that's Pur. Yud for Yom Kippur. And Mem for Matan Torah, that is for Shavuot. The Talmud, in the Yerushalmi the Talmud, the Midrash, and the Rambam, the Maimonides, all tell us how in the future, the time of Mashiach, all of the other holidays are going to not be around anymore. However, the holiday of Purim is never going to be forgotten and never not going to be observed because of how significant and great this miracle was. The Arizal says that the spiritual enlightenment and the spiritual opportunities that us Jews have on the day of Purim is greater than any other day, even greater than the spiritual enlightenment and opportunities we have on Shabbat and on Yom Tov. He says, on Shabbat and Yom Tov, we reach the highest level of spiritual enlightenment and opportunity when we daven Musaf, when we pray the prayer of Musaf from then and on. That's only a couple hours of the day. That's only from, let's say, midday, afternoon, till the end of Shabbat or the end of the holiday. However, Purim, the whole 24 hours, we are on that apex. We are on that high the whole way through. Something which makes Purim the greatest day of the year. The Zohar tells us that Purim not only comes from the word um, Kippur, Purim is like Yom Kippur, but Kippur means Ke, like Purim. Yom Kippur is not even as great as the day of Purim. The Arizal writes that the holiness on Purim 
is much greater than than Purim to the point where we also have an aspect on Purim of atonement. Now to understand that better, I found a very interesting sefer called Midrash Eliyahu. It was written by Rabbi Eliyahu HaKohen from Izmir, from Turkey. And he writes a fascinating insight, and I want to share this with you. The insight is that Yom Kippur, originally God instituted that as an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. The Jewish people came. When they came to sin of the golden calf, they came with eating and drinking and party and festive. So therefore, the way that God instituted an atonement for the sin of the golden calf was by fasting, the exact opposite. You ate when you weren't supposed to eat. You drank when you were supposed to not drink. You parted when you were not supposed to party. So God says, I'm going to make you have a day of atonement and a day of fasting. However, Purim, how did Purim come about? We brought Purim about because the Jewish people came and they fasted for three consecutive days. Remember at the request of Esther. So the way to fulfill and the way to celebrate the day of Purim is the opposite. It's by eating and by drinking and by parting. I thought of, to add on to this chidush, was if we look at Yom Kippur, the Talmud tells us anyone who fasts, sorry, anyone who eats on the day prior to Yom Kippur, on the 9th of Tishrei, and then fasts on the day of Yom Kippur, it's as if they fasted those both days, meaning both days are days of atonement. On Purim, we do the exact opposite. First we fast, that's the fast of Esther, and then we have a festive meal and we drink and we party. It's the exact opposite. Again, by the Egel, they fasted by eating and drinking, so the way to atone for that is by fasting. On Purim, what brought about this miracle that we commemorate is the fasting. And then we come and then we have a party and we eat and drink. The two holidays or the two days of Purim and Kippur are so similar that both days are atonement. The, fa- the eating and then the fasting for Yom Kippur. But then for Purim, the fasting and then the eating. Before we start the learning of the Megillah, I want to just name all of the 10 chapters for us with their uh, proper names. I, I went on to to give them short names which uh, allude to what goes on in each chapter and how long each chapter is. We see there's a discrepancy. They're not all the same, obviously. I want to go through all 10 of those chapters and then we're ready to start. So the first chapter is named the King of Persia. And there's 22 verses. The second chapter is the search for a new queen. And there's 23 verses. The third chapter is the promoted minister and his evil plan. That's 15 verses. The fourth chapter is the decree of genocide and the repentance of the Jews. That's 17 verses. The fifth chapter is titled the brave queen and her private banquet. There's 14 verses over there. The sixth chapter is the king's orders. The king orders the evil minister to honor the Jewish minister, alluding to Haman honoring Mordechai. And there's 14 verses over there. 
The seventh chapter is the evil minister's last meal and execution with only ten verses. The eighth chapter is titled The King Grants the Queen Her Wishes, and there's 17 verses. The ninth chapter, The Jews Counterattack and Victory for the Jews, that is 32 verses for chapter 9. And the final chapter, chapter 10, is titled The King and the World Acknowledge the Jewish Minister's Greatness, and there are three, only three verses in that chapter totaling up to 167 verses for the whole book of Esther in the 10 chapters that we are about to learn. Okay, we are ready to start learning. We're going to start with the first with the first chapter. Feel free to open a Megillah and follow along, or you can just listen to the audio classes and enjoy. Thank you for listening, and be sure to listen to more Torah Talks. Rabbi Laredo also has hundreds of Torah classes on YouTube, and more coming out daily. Go to youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Laredo.